If you have our Bibles, please turn those to Exodus chapter 18. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning is Family Matters. So we're going to look at a story where Moses has a family reunion with his wife, his children, and his father-in-law. We have moved, in, as we've gone through Exodus, from Moses uh, delivering Israel from their slavery and oppression in Egypt into the wilderness where Moses has become very much the mediator between God and His people. And we have seen how God has used Moses time and again to provide for His people. And here in this, this beautiful picture of a family reunion, we're going to see how the Lord is going to use Moses once again to mediate His grace and His goodness to them. If you would please, bow your heads and pray with me before we turn to God's Word. Gracious Father in Heaven, we come to You this morning as needy people, people who need to hear Your Word, people who are tired and weary from our works. Father, we have sought to work out our own salvation in this world apart from You. We have sought to do evangelism out of our own strength. We have sought to perform our own discipleship out of our own strength. And so we're weary and we're tired. We come to you as people who need rest this morning. Unfortunately, our own sin keeps us from seeing your word rightly. It keeps us from receiving the good news of the gospel and your grace. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would give us uh, the strength, to under, give us the, the awareness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds to see the goodness and the graciousness of the gospel, to receive it and to live that out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read just the first 12 verses of Exodus 18. Uh, and then I'll, as we go in the sermon, I'm going to summarize the second half of the chapter. Exodus 18, starting in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and with her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for the sake of Israel. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good news, for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, recently, I had a conversation with one of my students uh, that I felt like really connected uh, with this passage. Uh, this student was having a particularly difficult time. Uh, not unlike other college students, he had gone through a breakup. And going through this breakup was causing him to really assess who he was and what was going on in his life. And so we began to talk about all the things that he'd been wrestling with in his heart and his mind. And he said that he felt like one of the things that happened was that his identity had gotten wrapped up in his girlfriend. And I said, well, that's a great point. What is your identity? Like, what does that even mean to have an identity in Christ? And as we were walking through Hastings looking for a book, he began to articulate what he thought the gospel was, like what he thought his identity was. And he said things like, well, I try to be a good person. I try to read my Bible. Um, I, go to, I go to church. I go to RUF. I worship. And he, he just began going on and on and on, listing all the things that he did. And it struck me. He didn't say anything about what Jesus had done for him. He didn't say anything about his identity. All he did was rattle off a spiritual to-do list that he was checking off daily. And I looked at him and I said, brother, all you did was just tell me what you did. You didn't say anything about what Jesus did. And I took him to John 1.12 and I said, look at what it says in John 12. It says, but to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I said, this passage says that you are a child of God not based on anything that you do, but based on believing what Jesus has done for you. You're a child of God based on believing the good news about Jesus Christ. And I just thought, that is a great picture of how we get the order of the Gospel totally reversed. And we get our identity of the Gospel totally reversed. We tend to always put the doing of the Gospel before the believing of the Gospel. But what the Bible says from cover to cover, and what it says in this passage is, that the believing always comes before the doing. That the believing, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation from which we live in every single day. The believing always comes before the doing. And the problem with us is this, is that our hearts always confuse those two things. Our hearts always put the doing in front of the believing. You see, the default mode of the human heart is self-righteousness. It's self-work. And so we wake up every day and we fire up the computer of our hearts. And when that computer turns on, The operating system from which it works is works, is self-righteousness. And so what we literally have to do every day is re-download every morning the good news of the Gospel into our hearts. That the Gospel comes first and we believe the good news about Jesus Christ and then all of our doing flows out of our believing that good news. And if we don't do that, then we're going to burn ourselves out We're going to grow weary in doing good and working in the church. And we're actually going to hinder our evangelism. 
Because as we're going to talk about in a little bit, if we confuse the order in our own hearts, then when we go to share the Gospel with the other people, what we're going to end up doing is giving them a list of things to do rather than giving them a beautiful story to believe in. So this morning, as we look at Exodus 18, what I want you to simply see is that the believing of the Gospel always comes before doing Gospel ministry. Believing the Gospel always comes before doing. And it comes especially in the context of a family. So we're going to answer two simple questions this morning. We're going to, say, answer, the, we're going to answer two simple questions. The first one is this. How do we enter the family of God? And the second one is how do we live in the family of God? How do we enter the family of God? And how do we live in the family of God? The first thing we see in this text is how we enter the family of God. So you've got this family reunion, right? Uh, Moses, when he went to deliver uh, God's people from Egypt, most likely it looks like that he left his wife and his kids with his father-in-law Jethro in Midian. And now Jethro has heard about Israel's deliverance, and it's time to bring the family back, right? Jethro's going, okay, I've, I've, I've taken care of my daughter and your kids. Now it's time to bring them back, Moses, so you can take care of them. And so we have this beautiful picture of Jethro coming back, Moses and Jethro seeing each other, greeting each other with a holy kiss. I wouldn't recommend that, but apparently it was biblical during those times. Um, they're celebrating. It's a family reunion. It's an exciting time. They go in the tent, and they sit down to talk. And Moses begins to tell Jethro all of the good news that's happened. And he says, it says this in verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Moses is sharing the good news. He's sharing the Gospel. He's saying, look, we were in, Israel, we were in Egypt. We were oppressed. We were enslaved. We were worshiping other gods. And the Lord was so good and He was so gracious to us that He came in, He, he gave these plagues, and Pharaoh let us go. And we walked out of Israel. We walked out of Egypt. We left. We were freed. We got out in the wilderness and it was hard and we grumbled and we moaned, but the Lord provided manna for us and the Lord provided water for us. And now look at here we are. The Lord has delivered us. And Jethro praises God. And then what does Jethro say? He says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro hears the good news of the Gospel and he believes. It's interesting. Think about the contrast between the story we had last week and the story this week. The Amalekites would have also heard about what the Lord had done for Israel. But what did they do? They warred against God's people. Jethro hears about what the Lord has done for God's people and Jethro responds the right way. He praises God. He blesses Him. And then we see not only that, he actually confesses that Yahweh is Lord. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. This is his profession of faith. This is his conversion. More than likely. Jethro's heard about who the Lord is and what he's done. He's seen that, that the Lord is so powerful that he delivered God's people not just from this political superpower Egypt, 
but from all of their gods. Remember, the political nation-states back in that time went synonymous with their gods. That's where they got their power from. So when Jethro saw that, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, it wasn't that just He would brought them out of Egypt, He had brought them out from their gods. And that Yahweh had defeated all of those other gods. Jethro sees that He alone is God. He is greater than every other god. This is his profession of faith. He's believing the Gospel. And here we see that broken men and women, sinful men and women like Jethro, enter the family of God through believing the Gospel. The believing comes before the doing. Jethro was a Gentile. He was a priest. That means he was probably some sort of pagan priest. Whatever the Midianites worshipped, he would have been their priest that mediated the worship between those people and their God. And here he is, professing that the Lord is God. Believing the Gospel. This is the, same, uh, this is the same pattern that we see all through the Old Testament and all in the New Testament. Right? Ryan has been taking us through, the old, through Exodus week by week showing us how God's salvation in the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the salvation that we have in Christ. And then we get to the New Testament and we see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Then in the book of Acts, we see the apostles going out and sharing the good news with, with all the nations. And what do they do? They don't come in and give people a checklist of things that they have to do to be Christians. They come in and they start talking about the victory of Jesus. They start talking about how Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan. And He rose from the grave and now He sits in heaven and this is the Son of our great Father David. They start preaching the resurrected Christ and the victory of Christ. And that's what people start to believe. And people start to get changed and converted and they come into the family of God. Then in Romans 10, Paul starts talking about how the Gospel goes out and spreads to all the nations. And what does he say? Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. That as God's messengers go out and share the good news of the Gospel, people hear it and they believe and they're saved. The believing of the Gospel always comes before the doing. People have to hear it. They have to hear about the victory of Christ. And then they believe, and then they're saved. I recently heard a great illustration about how the Gospel spreads and how it's shared in this light. Uh, it's a story about two uh, members of a concentration camp during World War II. Uh, a story goes that these two guys found a walkie-talkie. They stole a walkie-talkie from one of the Nazi soldiers. And they started listening to all the radio transmissions over the walkie-talkie. Well, what did they hear? They heard about Normandy. They heard that the Allied forces had stormed the beaches of Normandy, had defeated the Axis powers, had taken key cities, and for all intents and purposes, the war was over. Even though their life in the concentration camp hadn't changed a bit, the war was over, the battle had been won, victory was theirs. They believed that, and that changed the way they lived in the concentration camp. They heard this announcement of the good news, and they believed it. And that's how the Gospel comes to us. We hear this announcement of the good news of the person and work of Jesus, and how He's won the battle, and we believe it, and that changes our lives. The hearing of the Gospel always comes before the doing of the Gospel. And I think if we believe this, if we sort of get this pattern ingrained in us, it is going to change the way that we do evangelism. 
and it's going to change the way we approach discipleship. I definitely think it's going to change the way we view evangelism. Because if you think about a lot of the ways that we think about evangelism, think about the terminology that we use in evangelism. We talk about convincing people for the gospel. We talk about winning souls for Christ. It's all this victorious, triumphant language that places all the emphasis on who? On us. But if we look at what Moses did here with Jethro, Moses didn't convince Jethro. Moses didn't win Jethro. What did Moses do? He shared the good news. He sat down with Jethro and said, look, look at, look at the amazing thing that the Lord has done. We were broken, sinful, oppressed people, and the Lord saved us. Just imagine what our evangelism would look like if we sat down with people and instead of giving them a list of things to do, we just sat down and started talking about Jesus and what He was doing in our lives and how He was changing us and how He was rescuing us. One of our RUF campus ministers just wrote an article called Humble Evangelism that was printed in Christianity Today. And he sort of talked about this very idea. And he said, what if when we got into an evangelistic conversation, instead of talking about how the other person needs Christ, we started talking about how we need Christ. And instead of expecting the other person to share their brokenness with us, we started sharing our brokenness with them. And instead of talking about what they need to do to get converted, we start talking about what Jesus has done for them. Humble evangelism. Sharing the good news of Jesus. I think if we begin to give people a more beautiful, a more powerful, a more wonderful picture of what Jesus has done in the Gospel, and we start placing all the emphasis on Him and what He's doing, how could people not want that? How could they not flock to it? I think it's going to be much more powerful than just giving them a list of to-dos. As uh, Thanksgiving comes up, as the holidays come up, I know for a lot of us, uh, for me in particular, uh, that's a time when we're interacting with our families. And not everybody in our family is a Christian necessarily. At least for me, and maybe not for you either. And if you're like me, you're always sort of struck by this tinge of sort of three competing forces, right? I, I, I have this like sort of brokenness over the unbelief of my family, right? So there's that feeling. There's this brokenness. But at the same time, there's this sort of inability to communicate the gospel to them. I've tried several times, several different ways, and I, and I can't convince them of the gospel. But then there's this, this deep desire to see them converted, and, and even maybe even in some ways some shame about them not being converted. And so you get into these conversations with your family, and you're like, how is this going to happen? And, and oftentimes for me, it means that I don't end up saying anything that I just sit there and, and we just have our same conversations about football and work. But imagine how this could revolutionize those conversations. Instead of us trying some new method, some new way to convince our family members to accept Christ, what if we just talk about the ways that Jesus has been good to us this year? And the way the Lord has delivered us from sin and brokenness. What if we just shared our own vulnerability with them? Instead of trying to convince them why they need the gospel, what if we just sat down and said, man, this is, Jesus has been really good to me this year. And this is how. I really struggled with this. I really struggled with this. And the Lord was faithful. He loved me in the midst of it. I think that would be a much more powerful and loving 
a, a way to approach our family members than simply trying to sit down and, and bait and switch them into having a conversation about the gospel that tries to convince them to, that they need Jesus. That's what Moses does with Jethro. And I think that's what we ought to do as well. I think maybe our evangelism takes our evangelism reverses the order because maybe our own hearts reverse the order. If you think about it, if we come into a conversation with people about the gospel and we immediately give them things to do, maybe that's because our own heart focuses on the, the doing of the gospel much more than the believing of the gospel. Uh, a few weeks ago, Ryan and I were at Presbytery, which is where our our regional pastors get together to do the work of the church. And one of the things that we do there is we hear ordination candidates preach. And one of those ordination candidates gave the most beautiful and simple pictures of the gospel that I've ever heard. And what he said is this. He said, every religion gives you a chair to sit in. Every other religion gives you a chair to sit in, and that's the do chair. If you want to join this religion, if you want to come to this religious family, then you sit in this chair of all these things that you have to do. But he said, only Christianity gives you a chair that's done. Only Christianity says, this is what God has been done for you, has done for you, now sit in it. And I know in my own hearts, I feel like I play musical chairs all the time. Whenever I lay down at night and I sort of think about all the things that we're doing in RUF and all the things that we haven't done in RUF, I find myself sitting in that do chair thinking about all the time, all the things that I have to do for Jesus and have to play musical chairs and go, no, 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 i got to sit in the done chair. I need to start thinking about all the things that Jesus has done for us and resting in that chair. Do you feel that same tension? You feel yourself always sitting in the do chair and forgetting about the done chair. I think we do that, and then that comes out in our evangelism. When we start talking to people, we start articulating what we have to do for the gospel rather than what Jesus has done for us. And that wears us out. That exhausts us, and it ultimately starts people on the wrong path in Christianity because all we've done is given them a list of things to do instead of telling them what Jesus has done. For them. What we see in this, in this passage is that Moses gives us a beautiful picture of what it means to enter the family of God, and it means that the, the believing of the gospel always comes before the doing, that we believe in the good news of, the, of Jesus and what he's done for us. The second thing we see is how we live in the family of God. We see how we live. And now I'm just going to summarize verses 13 through 27. But so after. Moses and Jethro had this beautiful conversation about the, gospel, about the gospel. The next day, Jethro observes sort of life in the family of God. And what does he observe? He observes Moses sitting in this seat where he judges the people of Israel in their disputes. And he observes this long line of people coming to Moses day and night to have him settle their disputes. And he sees that it wears Moses out. And then it wears the people out because they're standing in this long, this long line all day to figure out what's going on and it's inefficient and it's ineffective for them settling their disputes. Now, when we read this, we immediately think that Moses is just settling like little bickering and little quarreling within the family of God. And there may have been some of that going on. 
But what commentators say was more likely going on was that Moses was revealing the will of God to his people about all matters of life. That God's people were bringing all matters, small matters and and great matters, to Moses so they can just hear the will of God in these issues. So Moses is mediating the will of God to his people. Well, Jethro sees this. He sees how ineffective it is. And he says, listen, Moses, I've got an idea for you. Like the good father-in-law he is, with all of his wisdom, comes to Moses and says, look, this is what you need to do. You need to appoint men with good character and with the skill necessary for doing this to oversee different groups of people. To oversee smaller groups and larger groups. And let them judge in all these smaller matters. And then when there's a big issue that they can't decide on, then they can bring those bigger issues to you and you can settle those bigger issues. And Moses says, huh, all right. Maybe this is from the Lord. Maybe this is a good idea. And he implements the new system. He listens to his father-in-law. Guys, side note, lots of times it's good to listen to your father-in-law. They have good ideas. I listen to my father-in-law a lot. <laughs> There's lots of good wisdom that comes from father-in-laws. All right? And this is great godly wisdom that God in His grace has given Jethro, probably because Jethro was a leader and an overseer of people, He's given him some common grace insight into how to best manage the people of God. And he totally changed this sort of hierarchy and structure within Israel. Instead of, instead of Moses just being the one that everybody comes to see, now there are all these overseers all over the people of God that they can come and hear the Word of God from. It's much more efficient and effective and it doesn't wear out Moses. Well, when we get to the New Testament, what do we see? We see the same type of pattern develop. Right? Did Jesus come on the scene and then start doing all the ministry by himself? No. He gathered the 12 disciples. He taught them how to do ministry and then he sent them out. Then when we get to the book of Acts, do we see the apostles doing all ministry by themselves? No. They gathered able men around them and they ordained them as overseers over the local churches and they let those men oversee the body of Christ in those areas. And this is where the idea of the Presbyterian form of government comes from. This pattern of Christ being the mediator and then Christ setting up representatives that oversee different groups of people for Him. In our church, we have ruling elders and teaching elders. The teaching elders are Ryan and myself. Right? Our job is to minister the Word of God to you specifically and vocationally as pastors. And then we have ruling elders. We have Tom and Doug and uh, Eddie. And their job is also to co-labor with us to, to do the ministry of the Word of God together. right? To work together to, to minister the Word of God to His people. And so what we see is that the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God is a burden that we share as a family. Okay? Um, uh, and, and, and I say that because it's not like just Ryan and I are the only ones ministering the Word of God. Um, and, and these guys aren't the only ones ministering the Word of God. But we believe that the Great Commission was given to the church. The Great Commission is go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus gave that to the apostles. They represented the church. 
He's given that mission to the church. And so it's not just a burden that we share, it's a burden that we all share as the family of God. And so the first thing we see from this passage is that this burden of ministering the Word of God is something that we all share. It's a family burden. As I thought about this, I I thought about a family that I knew in Tulsa that had a family burden that they all shared together. Uh, This family had a large yard with tons of trees all over it. And so every fall, they would just have massive amounts of trees falling all over their yard. So by Thanksgiving, the entire yard was covered with nothing but leaves. So what happened? The dad got there all by himself and raked all those leaves by himself. No. Every Thanksgiving, the entire family would get together and they would go out there and they would share in the burden of raking those leaves together. They'd go out there, they'd, and they did the old-fashioned way. There was no blowers, nothing. It was just like the hand rakes and trash bags. They would get out there and they would work day and night as long as it took and they would rake all those leaves and by the end of Thanksgiving break, they would be done. They shared the burden together. We share the burden of ministering the Word of God together. And so what that means for Ryan and I specifically, that we're ministering by preaching and teaching the Word of God, and that what that means for Eddie and Tom and Doug is they're, they're also participating with us as we minister the Word of God and they oversee the body of Christ. And that also means that you, in grace, get to share in that burden. You get to use your time, your money, your energy, and your skills to help the Word of God go out so that more and more people can hear it. Jethro had some very specific expertise. He was the priest of Midian. God's grace had given him this position to oversee the Midianites. Well, when he comes into God's family, now all of a sudden that gift is redeemed for the good of the kingdom, and he gets to use that expertise to minister to God's people to help the Word go out more effectively. What expertise do you have that would help the Word of God go out more effectively in grace to water? What time, energy, sacrifice could you give to the body of Christ here that would help these men share in the burden? All of you have it. Everybody in this body has been giving something by God to help us share in the ministry of the Word of God. What is it? How can you use it? It's very, very important, especially as we go into this new season with the new building, that we all look at the goodness of the Gospel and see what God has done for us, and then we let the Lord redeem our gifts so that we can help with the ministry of the church, so that more and more people can hear about Jesus and the Gospel can go out and spread. And Ryan needs us to do this as a body. He will burn himself out if he tries to do this on his own. Moses would have burned himself out if he continued to try to minister to the people of God all on his own. Ryan needs the elders. Ryan needs you guys to come alongside him to bear the burden of ministering the Word of God to the people of God. Would you do that? Would you think and pray about how you can be more and more a part of this local body? Whether it's setting up chairs, serving in the nursery, uh, helping out with the progressive dinner, Whatever it is, using your gifts and talents that God has given you to make sure that that this body can minister the Word to the people of God. So the first thing we see is that every matter, great and small, is brought to Moses. that, That this entire community is centered around the will of God. And the second thing that we see in this story is that everybody in the family shares the burden of this work. But here's the catch. If you don't place the believing before the doing, 
you're going to end up wearing yourself out. We have to ask ourselves, what did Moses believe that allowed him to let other people be a part of the ministry? What did Moses believe that allowed him to step off of the judgment seat and allow other people to judge and participate? He believed that ultimately that God was on the throne. That God was at work. And if you and I don't believe that as well, if we don't believe that God is on the throne and He's at work, then we're going to wear ourselves out too. So you just heard me do two things. We ju- you just heard me ask you to participate in the life of the body of the church. And you also, told, you also heard me say that there may be some times when you have to say no. When you have to trust that Jesus is at work without you. That Jesus would love to work with you and through you. But sometimes you might need to let other people do that work. Whenever I was in Tulsa, our pastor, uh, Ricky, had always said that he was going to go on a sabbatical during his seventh year of the church plant. So he's going to come, he's going to plant the church. After six years, he's going to take a sabbatical. Well, the seventh year came, it was time to take a sabbatical, and guess what? It was probably the busiest season of the church. We had just acquired a new property, We were talking about changing the name of the church. And Ricky was faced with the prospect of going on sabbatical for three months and coming back to a church with a new location and a new name. He had to believe that God was at work and that Jesus was mediating on the throne for him to get any rest on his sabbatical. And when he came back, he said that one of the things that he learned while he was on his sabbatical was that Jesus loved him and loved the ministry he was doing, but he didn't need him to do ministry. That God was at work in our church regardless of if Ricky was there or not. The church was a lot better with Ricky because I was on staff and I saw all the bumps and bruises along the way that we took trying to get through those three months. But it was true. Ricky really did believe that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus was on the throne, that Jesus loved the church more than he did, and that allowed him to rest. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that Jesus is on the throne rescuing, redeeming, renewing, and ruling over all things? If you believe that, then that's going to allow you to say no when you need to say no. And that's going to allow you to say yes when you need to say yes. Sometimes you need to say no and you need to rest in the goodness of the Gospel. And sometimes you need to say yes. The Gospel has so moved and changed me in my life that I'm going to go get involved. I'm going to be active. But it only comes if you place the believing before the doing. If you reverse the order, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to to drive yourself out of the church. You're going to drive others away from the church. We only get the good news of the gospel right when we have the believing first and the doing second.